Up next on episode 41 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff sit down with Robert Martin, a.k.a. Uncle Bob, and discuss software quality, the value of software engineering principles, and test-driven development from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. I've, I've, I've had dreams where I'm debugging, and then I have to, like, dream the bug itself in order to make, you know, I have to invent the bug to make the mm. dream work out. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> um, I, I guess I should bring our listeners up to speed because at some point they will have turn, turn, turned us on. This week's uh, guest host is Robert Martin, um, better known as Uncle Bob. He's a consultant and author in the field of agile programming and object-oriented design. Thanks for being with us, Bob. Oh, well, thank you for having me on and letting me yell at you guys. <laughs> and, before, and before we get started, um, I do want to apologize uh, a little bit for uh, episode 38. Um, my arguments at one point in that show were ad hominem and personal, and there was no call for that, and I apologize. Um, but I am glad you agreed to be on the show today and come set us straight. Well, apology accepted, and let's move on. All right. Cool. So um, what's new in Stack Overflow? It was a little bit of a big week for us. So we, we actually moved data centers. We're now in, uh, with Peak Internet in Corvallis, Oregon, uh, which coincidentally happens to be where one of the team members, Jeff Douglas, also lives. So he's our human remote access card, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, that went relatively smoothly. We did have a few DNS blips, which I don't think I appreciated when you have a truly global audience how weird that can get. <laughs> yeah, We set our time to live to the lowest interval we could in advance. And it went relatively smoothly, but... There's there always... Some... Yeah, whenever I've done that, there's always a, like 1% of people that just complain about the DNS not resolving. Because yeah. they have a broken TDS server somewhere, a uh, DNS server. Yeah, and the other reason we did it was on Sunday, obviously, is a low traffic day, mm -hmm. lower. Actually, Saturday's lower, surprisingly. I think because Sunday bleeds over into Monday, but uh, Sunday was a good day. So that, that went relatively smoothly, and I want to uh, thank Jeff and Jared for doing a great job on that with me. Did you do the, uh, so uh, the, new did you do the thing that we suggested of the, the moving the backup log and then moving the differentials later? I did do that. We did a diff... Um, yeah, the diff was still pretty big. The diff was still like a gig, which is better than four plus gigs. But hmm. I was surprised how big the differential was from like Saturday, Saturday night to yeah. Sunday morning. It was already like a gig. That was surprising to me. Uh, but we did do that. I also did an ISP to ISP transfer. So I transferred like 650 megs of data like in under a, under a minute, which was like, wow. That's always fun. <laughs> I've never transferred a file that fast before in my life that wasn't, you know, over the internet. That was crazy. Uh, so, yeah, we did take your advice and do the differential. I do listen occasionally. Maybe it's a result. lot of uh, zeros in the file, and so it transfers faster because it's uh, not a lot of yeah. bits to be carried. That, that, was, that was fun to watch. Uh, so the other thing I noticed is now we have these servers that have really quite a bit more memory. So on the database, we have 24 gigs, and we have on the web tier, we have 8 gigs. And it really opened up a lot of breathing room for these these processes because before they were 
uh, they were on machines that had four gig and four gig respectively, mm-hmm. and you know they used a lot of memory. But now the database server uses twelve gigs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the SQL server process uses twelve gigs. It seems to top out at twelve. It doesn't really seem to want to use more than that. And then on the web tier, um, we we sort of unleashed some of our. We were doing some gzip compression of some of the stuff we were caching, so I did away with that in advance of this move. Mm-hmm. And now it uses regularly up to sometimes it peaks at like four gigs of memory. So. I mean, memory is just a great investment. And memory is so cheap now. It's like crazy not to use just ridiculous Mine's amounts of memory on your servers. Yeah. Uh, paid a penny a bit. bit the first bit of memory that I ever bought. Yeah. Wow, it was $500. $512 for 512 bits of RAM. 512 bits. Yeah, I was probably 16 years old at the time and, and trying to build computers in my basement. And we we're very excited to get this solid state memory. Only cost us five hundred dollars. Was there was there a kit? I mean, what did you start with? Is like a ZE oh, no, kind of board? It was a board you could buy from a a, a hobbyist. And what, what what? And we bought it, and it was just wonderful. We could you know put our little clip leads on the edge of the board and toggle switches and store bits in there. <laughs> <laughs> wow, per bit pricing. That's that's uh... a dollar a bit. Wow, dollar exactly. a bit. No, it's a penny exactly. a bit. No, a dollar a bit. You're right. Five hundred, five hundred dollars, five hundred bits. <laughs> One dollar per bit. Wow. That's, uh, that's I will a for a dollar. I'll, I'll memorize any bit you want and in regurgitate <laughs> to you on demand. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's pretty much it on the the, the Stack Overflow f- front. That was the major news. We are trying to get uh, the email feature in. Jeff is working on that frantically today. And this will like did a little bit of work. If something happens to one yes. of events. Yes. Well, we got to set up SMTP. We haven't done that yet. We were looking at using like Google, but then I was skeptical of this. We were using yeah. Gmail, and I was like, really? They're going to let us mail thousands of people through Gmail? Um, so Jeff found out that obviously there's limits on how many people you can send to that way. So I think we're just going to go with the SMTP service um, in I. In, in Windows. Yeah, yeah, they're regular that up. one for outgoing email, certainly. Yeah, exactly. And then once we do that, we're on to sort of the massive database refactoring, sort of the technical debt that we've incurred there, uh, where we just got to get rid of We just got to stop doing so many joins. It's just way too expensive. Oh, right, right. For to be really, really responsive hey, is there like a I want to be. Last week's new feature was this bounty thing. Well, I don't know if last week, but a recent new feature. And I couldn't find yes. a way to find bounties. Like, I, I see them occasionally. But what if it's I want to It's the featured search? tab on the front page. Oh, featured. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I didn't, I, didn't it's not called, I was looking for that everywhere. Yeah, we, we internally we called it bounty, but I think featured, I don't know, that was just the word that made more sense to me. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe but like that, that's where it is. Reward. And also, if you go to the questions um, header, there's also a sort where you can feature it as well. See, so there's two yeah, different okay, ways to get that. I didn't you were calling it that. I was looking under unanswered. Yeah, it should be under unanswered as well. People have pointed out that it's kind of silly that it's not. Because they are unanswered. Those, that's kind of what it means. Yeah, they are technically unanswered by definition. So, But anyway, that's all the Stack Overflow news. I just want to get that out of the way. All right, uh, so first. let's start mopping up the mess from Stack Overflow episode number 38. <laughs> still still right. three weeks later. I'm going to play, uh, I wanna, right. I wanna play uh, one, one clip um, uh, from, from that episode. I don't want to go into too much detail, but uh, um, I just want to play one clip of something that Jeff said on that show. Uh, There's multiple axes you're working on here. Quality mm-hmm. is just one axis. Mm-hmm. And I find, sadly, to be pe- completely honest with everybody listening, quality really doesn't matter that much in the big scheme of things. Like, there was this quote from Frank Zappa where he said, nobody gives a crap if we're great musicians, right? <laughs> and it re- I'm going to interrupt the clip here to point out that at this point, I immediately started trying to search the internet to find that Frank Zappa joke with the table and the wood leg and all that kind of stuff. 
And so right. I took no responsibility for anything you were saying because I was looking for the joke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See how I managed to like... was the clip that I wanted to start with, by the way. So thank you for that. Um, let, let, let me finish playing it. There's though. multiple axes you're working on here. Wait, Quality is just one part. axis. Here, don't jump forward, please. And it really is true. Like nobody was the people that appreciate Frank Zappa's music aren't going, Oh, that, that guitar was just really off, you know? Huh. They're hearing the whole song. They're hearing the music. They're not really worried whether your code, you know, has the correct object interfaces or if it's developed in a pure way or written in Ruby or P they don't really even care about that stuff. I mean, we do internally, but I don't know, it's it's important to balance that, I think. And I think that gets missed a lot, which is kind of maybe the point you're getting at. And yeah. I, I think over time I'm more and more I've become really lax in my thinking on this because what matters is what you deliver to the customer, you know, and, and how happy the customer is with what you delivered. So, Jeff, what did, what did you mean there where you were like, I don't care about quality. Quality is a waste of time. And so, Well, I, obviously, I don't think you should take it literally. I wasn't literally <laughs> saying we don't care about quality because <laughs> – but I think in the, in the context, it's, it's about the axes, right? It's about – so to me, the root issue is if you deliver a product, a software product that nobody likes or wants to use, it really doesn't matter how high quality your code is. That's really the bottom line. And I think I've learned this from WordPress because WordPress is a great – it's a fantastic tool. But the code is just the worst code you can possibly imagine. First of all, it's written PHP, which is already a problem, right? And on top of that, it's, it's crazy PHP. Like, it'll melt your brain if you look at it too long. I mean, everybody that looks at it comes back, like, they've looked into the horrors, and, like, it looks back into them. Uh, but ultimately, it doesn't matter, because there's this fantastic community around WordPress. There's all these people hacking on it. There's all these people using it. It's doing all these great things out into the world. And that really sort of changed the way I view code quality as, you know, again, these axes of things you're trying to balance. It's like, you want this product that people want to use and enjoy using and has this great community around it because you can fix you can fix code quality you cannot fix nobody gives a crap about your product that is unfixable so to focus on code quality to the detriment of do people give a crap about my product is really the wrong way to go and i think that's that's how i'd phrase it and well i'd agree with that but but it's a false dichotomy nobody nobody wants to create a product that you don't care about on the other hand, you also want to make sure that your products can survive. And one of the problems that I face as a consultant is going into companies where the code quality is, is so bad that the, uh, the management can't get anything done. No features can be added. Every time they touch the system, it breaks in 50 places. Every estimate for any task is, is weeks long. Because everyone is so fearful to touch this code, like you said of the of the PHP code, I'm not familiar with WordPress, so I can't I can't comment on that. But they have a community of people who know it deeply, and they're they're enthused about it, and they must be working in it and knowing it. And and apparently they're not destroying it. <laughs> but many many products get destroyed through this this uh, horrible lack of quality because they're focusing on the features and not on what's under the hood. I think there's, um, you know, all of us are we're using the word quality, and the more I thought about this, the more I realized that uh, there's, you know, about eight different levels of of what we mean when we say uh, code quality, and, and and there's different there's different tools for addressing the quality at all these different levels. So I think of, um, uh, the, you know, one one level of code quality is does the code do what the 
what the programmer intended for it to do. In other words, they wrote a loop and, and does it do what they intended or did they make a mistake in that? And that's a very l low level of very, very granular quality. Uh, you know, and you can design for that and test for that and so forth. And, and, and at a higher level, the question is, did what the programmer wanted to do, was that even the right thing to have it do? And, um, you know, maybe they're expressing themselves correctly in code and it doesn't appear to have a bug, but actually what they're trying to do is not the right thing to do because maybe it conflicts with something else that they didn't think about or just doesn't look right when you actually run it. And then there's the level of, uh, and then there's all these other sort of dimensions. And I think these are kind of what Jeff was getting at with the axes. Like usability is obviously a very important thing. And we're all, you know, I don't think anybody would doubt that usability is an important aspect uh, of quality. And you, the only way to test that really is, is uh, use, usability testing. And that's a completely different kind of activity than um, a lot of other kind of code testing activities. Um, and then there's just sort of suitability to tasks, scalability. Will it run? Will it run fast? Can you put it on real servers? Will it crash all the time? Uh, and then there's the whole realm of modifiability. Can the code be changed uh, easily or, or have we painted ourselves into, into various corners? And so let me tell you a story of a, of a company I know of. Um, they produced a product in the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, and it was a, a C debugger. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was fantastic. I don't know if you were doing any C coding at that time, yeah. but but a bunch of us had got this tool, and it was like uh, being born again because because you could debug your C code in text form mm -hmm. uh, instead of in binary. It would interpret the yeah. uh, the text, and you could run set breakpoints in it, and you could look at the heap and so forth. And it was very very clever because it would only debug in text the uh, certain modules. Other modules could be uh, compiled down to relocatable and they would execute native. Mm -hmm. uh, we loved this tool. It was, it was a terrific tool, uh, but it, this happened right at the time when C++ was getting popular. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of us moved to the C++ world and we were going right back to the company saying, okay, where's the C++ version? And uh, it took them a while, but they eventually came out with the C++ version. And it uh, took 45 minutes to load and then crashed. <laughs> and we, uh, we, you know, complained bitterly about this. And they said, well, we're going to fix this in the next version. And the next version took six months to deliver. And it took 45 minutes to load and then crashed. And after that, the company went away. Mm -hmm. They had a wonderful tool. It was terrific. And uh, they could not make the change to a different language. They couldn't upgrade that product. And I talked to one of the guys who worked there several years later. I ran into him at a conference, and he said, yeah, we'd rushed to market, we had gotten out real early, and we'd made a horrible mess. Mm -hmm. And there was just no way we were going to take that mess and migrate it to the new language. It just was all broke happen? down. Yeah. Now, but I mean, but at the same time, uh, the, the compiler vendors were starting to put source debuggers in, in their products, I assume. So, I mean, they also now, had competition this, this show up. Before that. Yeah. This was, this was like uh, 90... Uh, 9091. I was working at Rational at the time on first release of Rose. God help me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we forgive you. Yeah. Well, how's that we doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's so. Let's call that the axis of sort of the mod modifiability, or or you know, because you know when you look at when when Jeff says the ultimate thing is is the user happy, um, you know that has to be taken across time. They have to be happy, and they have to continue to be happy in the future. And yes. if the code can't be modified. Uh, that is one of the values of code is that it right. can be changed and modified over time. It's not good enough that it does 
that it does what it's supposed to do and that it meets its requirements. It also has to migrate with the needs of the customer. What, what I remember from my code in the 80s is that you, could ne- you couldn't even do things the right way if you wanted to. You couldn't write clean code because it wouldn't fit. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was, just, it was just not possible. I mean, I remember um, the, the, the instance I remember is looking at Borland, um, Borland Quattro Pro for Windows, which uh, came to compete against uh, Excel for Windows, which I was working on. And Excel was written in C and Quattro Pro was written in C++. And they actually marketed it the fact that they had used object-oriented programming as their, as their programming technique was actually a marketing, uh, listed as a marketing benefit uh, in those days. What a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it didn't work um, <laughs> a, because nobody cared what it was written in. And actually, yeah. um, what, what was happening then, this was uh, in the, uh, the, the, the mainstream chip then was an 8386. And on the 8386, um, that had the segmented memory architecture. You had near pointers and far pointers, and a near pointer, oh, God. near pointer could only be 16 bits, and a far pointer was 32 bits. I want to find the guy who designed that system. Right, <laughs> that was that was what we all wasted our time on. And um, so, interesting story here is that when you're writing a C++, when the, the first C++ compilers, I think all the C++ compilers um, for that architecture, whenever you you had a V table, uh, in other words, your your, your method pointers. Uh, in order to make life simple, they just used 32, 32-bit pointers for everything. So everything was a 32-bit pointer uh, or a four-pointer, which gave you basically the full 32 bits of, of address space um, for your function calls, at least. And this was much more important in C++ than it was in C. In C, you would make enormous efforts to keep your pointers local as much as possible. Yes. Um, And the reason was that it turns out that using a 32-bit pointer was just orders of magnitude slower than a 16-bit pointer. Um, Because uh, you had to load that. The left 16 bits was a segment, and you had to load that. And every time you did that, the the CPU went off into space and did all kinds of memory management for you without telling you what it was doing. And it took a really, really long time. The net result, actually, was that... um, uh, the the Borland C++ products, there were two of them. There was um, Quattro Pro for Windows and their Paradox for Windows was their, was their database. And um, their startup time was on the order of minutes. Uh, you know, they, had a, they showed you a progress indicator while they were launching. And their performance was just un, unbearable in those days. And uh, Excel you know, launched in a, a matter of seconds using very, very optimized C code. And in fact, the, C co- the, the code in Excel was astonishing. Not only, instead of using near pointers or far pointers, they came up with this idea of a based pointer, where in C, you actually had to load the segment register yourself, even though you're in <laughs> C. It's like the worst of all possible worlds, and it's just a way of going in and making your code like utterly horrific. Well, uh, now, see, there I'll take you to task, because although you're right, that's a co- complicating issue, and it would make the... For lots of problems for the programmer, you could still keep your code clean. It doesn't mean that you have to throw away um, throw away any of your uh, of your disciplines. You just have to deal with this this external complexity of the of the memory mapping of the machine. Right, right. But you could still keep it well organized. You could still keep your names well done. You could still keep yeah. your methods small. You could still practice reasonable uh, craftsmanship quality. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they never did any of that stuff. But well, could. no, of course not. I mean, who does anything like that? You could. Um, well, a lot of these rules, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, Bob, I was reading the solid principles, and I realized I'd actually linked to one of the solid principles in an article I'd written called uh, Curly's Law, Do One Thing, ah, yes. where Tim Ottinger was talking about outliving the great variable shortage, where people were using one variable to do, basically reusing variables, which is silly, <laughs> because you can just create as many as you want. You know, you don't need to reuse variables. Um, 
and that tied into you know the single responsibility principle I thought, which was you know just have the variable do one thing. And a lot of these principles, they're good principles, and I think they boil down to to great guidelines. But I, the more I write code, the more I think that writing code is is like writing in general, which is really difficult for a lot of people. And this is you know structured writing that's enforced by a compiler sometimes. So this is a theoretically easier form of writing, but there's no real rules that can make you a good writer, right? Nobody can sit down and say, I'm going to read these rules. At the end of this list, I will be an excellent writer. You know, I'm going to well, be I, like Stephen you King. Saying, you know, that Strunk yeah. and White should not have written elements of style. No, I, I think they should. I, but, I, and I think the rules are important, but I, but I think they tend to be more... Involved? Yes, there is a talent involved. There is some deep thing that's wrong with programmers that makes them good programmers. But there's also a set of techniques that that those of us who have been programming for 40 years have learned over time and can share. Uh, and Strunk and White is a good example of that. You know, it'd be, uh, here's a couple of ways to make your papers look regular and normal, or here is a set of principles that, that you can follow when you have problems that, that will help you get out of it. It can't just be ad hoc. Bob, can you explain, again, the single responsibility principle? Because I don't think I understand it right. <laughs> the single responsibility principle is um, its actually a very old principle. I think it was coined by Bertrand Meyer a long time ago. Um, the uh, basic idea is simple. If you have a module or a function or, or anything, mm-hmm. uh, it should have one reason to change. It, and by that I mean that if there is some other source of change, if there are sources of change out there, mm-hmm. uh, one source of change should impact it. So, uh, and a simple example, uh, we have a, an employee. This is the one I use all the time. Wait, wait, wait. Hold, employee, hold on, hold on. Let me stop you for a second. Yep, yep. Change, you mean like at runtime, like? No. Okay. No, at uh, development time. You mean changing if the I'm code. There should be one source of entropy in the world, which causes you to have to change the source code for that thing. Yes, yeah, that's the ideal. I mean, do you ever achieve that? No. Oh, but, well, okay, we'll get to that in a second. The, <laughs> yeah. you, you try to get your module so that uh, if a feature changes, uh, a module might change, but no other feature change will affect that module. Mm-hmm. You try and get your module so partitioned that when a change occurs uh, in the requirements, it, the minimum possible number of modules are affected. Uh, and then, the, so the example I always use is the employee class. Uh, should an employee know how to write itself to the database, how to calculate its pay, and how to write an employee report. And uh, if you had all of that functionality inside an employee class, uh, then when the accountants changed the business rules for calculating pay, you'd have to change the employee. You'd have to modify the code of the employee. Or if the, if the uh, bean counters uh, changed the format of the report, uh, you'd have to go in and change this class. Or if the DBAs changed the schema, you'd have to go in and change this class. I call classes like this dependency magnets. They change for too many reasons. Is that uh, uh, and how is that bad? I mean, how is okay, that bad? So well, code changes uh, a lot. If a module changes a lot, mm. then it becomes a focus source of change. Other modules depend upon it, and so they will inherit that that uh, volatility. So let's say you've got six modules; they all use the employee, mm-hmm. and now somebody changes the uh, the schema of the uh, database. Uh, the employee's got to change because the schema changed. But now you've got to recompile and retest and re-release all the modules that depended on employee. There's this back-chaining up through the module structure. As you, f- as you get to one of these dependency magnets, 
everybody that depends on that is going to have to get redeployed and retested, and sometimes recompiled, often recompiled. So is that really, I, I mean, it, it seems to me like if the schema of the employee changed because, let's say, there's some new federal reporting requirement and now employees, we have to track this thing. And it seems to me like that would actually impact uh, a few places, like that would impact uh, how it's written to the database, that would impact what the report shows, and that would impact maybe even the payroll calculation. So I have to touch some subset of you those. Might, you're going to have to touch some subset. The subset that, that uh, have actually changed. But here's the, here's the counterexample. Uh, the bean counters decide that they want two columns in the report swapped. They just want them, you know, turned, uh, moved one okay. on the left and the other to the right. So I only changed the report, the employee reporter. Right. So it's just the, the, the report has changed, uh, and you've got to go into this module and just change the, the string manipulations for this report. And, now, uh, it is, and because of that, the employee record has changed. This sounds to me it, like um, if you were... If you were con highly concerned about, if you were in a very large C++ environment and you were highly concerned with not triggering full builds because the .h file changed, uh, that, that this would be a, you know, a reasonable concern. But, but I, I don't think that that's a, I'm still not buying that it's a humongous problem. I mean, okay, the two things in the report change. You've got all these people that, quote, unquote, depend on the employee but something about the employee has changed because of the way that its reporting has changed. And they recompile, and nothing has really changed there. Yes. Now, so first of all, you're right. The C++ world is, is the, uh, uh, the hell where this principle was really born. Right, right. Uh, because the, any, any small change to a header file kicks off a massive build. And in the, uh, the 80s and 90s, a massive build could be two hours. Yeah. Well, it could be more than that. But we, uh, we fix that by getting better linkers or by using dynamic programming or by... Or by using dynamic... Pro what we haven't fixed is the problem of independent deployability. Mm -hmm. So you have a system that, that is composed of several different jar files, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. uh, and you would like to be able to release those jar files uh, independently of one another. But if there are dependencies that sneak through those jar files such that you have to rebuild a jar file and then redeploy the other jar files that depend upon it, mm -hmm. you can't independently deploy the, the modules. So this is an, an issue yeah. of componentization. Well, we've uh, actually... You want to yeah. deploy all that stuff independently. Haven't you? I mean, we, we're, we're moving in the other direction, which is, I, I think that the world started, you know, there's the, there's, the, there's the saying of DLL hell on Windows. Yes. The DLLs were created on Windows. Godnet fixed that, you know. S sorry? Godnet fixed that. Uh, There's no DLL anymore. Well, that's just because we just have lots of copies of stuff. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, what we're discovering is we can't even ship. I mean, our product runs on uh, Unix, relies on Apache, re relies on a database server, um, relies on a, a particular version of Mono um, because it's .NET code. And uh, we've just discovered that it's a complete waste of time to try to run with whatever version of Mono the user has on their system or whatever version of Apache, that we're better off actually just bundling it onto one big gigantic hairball that we give people um, that has everything that they need because at least we have some control. You know, we know that it's been tested with those versions of those components. It, like, it sounds to me like, is it really a goal to be able to deploy in, in things independently? Doesn't that just create a, a, a matrix a deployment matrix testing hell where you've got lots of different versions of things out there and you want to at least no, test I'm, it to I'm, work against I'm each other? I'm completely with you. I, I want to control the hairball myself. Yeah. I, I would much rather package all the, all the version jar files together and ship it in one great big 
a big clump. Yeah, heck, I would even give the clients the compiler that we used to build it in case. Well, <laughs> and, and I have worked on projects where we did exactly that. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the idea of independent deployability carries a whole, bu- a whole distance, right? You're, uh, not only do you want to be able to independently deploy to customers if possible, mm-hmm. uh, you'd also like to be able to independently deploy within your teams, uh, you would like to be able to kick off a build, uh, build your component, and without affecting everybody else, run your tests. Right, right. You would like to be able to work in a team environment where many teams are working together, and the dependencies through all the components are minimized so that everyone understands when you build this one, you don't have to build that one. Yeah. And when you build this one, you don't have to build that one. I mean, there's no, there's no question that, uh, that there, are, there are certainly cases where there are a lot of instances. For example, think of plugins. Does Word uh, does WordPress have a uh, Jeff? Does WordPress have any kind of plugin architecture? Oh my gosh! Are you kidding me? It's yeah. huge. Yeah, it's they got millions of plugins, ecosystem. right? So that's so. No matter how bad the WordPress code is, they got that part right, which is that you can write plugins well, for it. Not really. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, let me give you an example to be very specific about what you're talking about. So they have a plugin ecosystem. It's very vibrant. Any plugin you can possibly imagine has been created, which is awesome. But the problem for me is that I'm running WordPress on Windows. Oh, well, which nobody does works. that. Come on. Well, no, it works and it's supported by WordPress. But not every random plugin author tests on Windows. Right. Right? And it's not their fault. I mean, they're, maybe they're Linux users or they just never use Windows. I don't blame them. Just, but their, pl- yeah. their plugins just will inexplicably not work in really bizarre ways that don't make any sense. Yeah, the file. And it's really common. And... Like when I was looking for CAPTCHA plugins for the blog to reduce spam on the comments, mm-hmm. I had to go through literally like six or seven. I got super frustrated before I found one that would work on Windows. So, yeah. Fair for enough. what it's worth. Yeah. So one, one of the things... Um, Bob, tell me what you do about I, – I, I think that some of these things are um, important engineering principles if you understand what they do. But I think sometimes that they're, they fall into the hands <laughs> of people who don't really know what they do or don't really know why you're doing them. And uh, these people become uh, doctrinaire about doing them you know, 100% of the time even when they don't understand what they're supposed to accomplish. Oh, yeah, and that's well, always – you, yeah, you let don't. me interrupt real briefly there and just add one point. So at what point does having the rules make things worse? Like you'd have somebody that reads Trunk and White and becomes just ridiculous, like, like Joel saying, very doctrinaire about you must do X, you must do Y. And then oh, realize and, that writing is a very fluid process where there's and have sort of read, a lot of ways to get it. Have you read papers that are, are perfectly formatted and they follow all the Trunk and Write pl- rules and they're crap? <laughs> or you can't understand what they're trying to say. Yeah, or, right. or they're just stupid. And they're in the you know yeah. the the point they're making is stupid. Or or yeah, uh, you certainly you take a, a set of principles like this, and if that's all you follow, you will create you know a different kind of mess. <laughs> right? Yeah, the, a the, very well formatted mess. Um, so that's uh, clearly not the point. the The point is is that if you if you know these principles, and if you have the the talent to uh, to write good software, you'll be able to apply them. You'll be able to look at them. And say, oh yeah, there's too many dependencies coming into this module. Mm-hmm. Look, when I change this, that changes. Oh, I should break that. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I've observed is that you really have two kinds of programmers. You have the kinds that are sort of they they observe what they're doing and they adjust what they're doing. In other words, they're thinking about what they're doing. And then you have the developers that pretty much don't think about what they're doing. You know, so. It, if you throw a rule set at, at, at a thoughtful developer, they'll get something out of it. 
But I think the type of developers that are just going to write this crap code are sort of immune to these rules because they're not thinking about what they're doing at some fundamental level. They're just like, whatever it takes to get it done, and then they move on to the next thing. They're not thinking, wow, how could I do that better the next time? Yeah, I mean, it's I sad, but you mentioned developers. You know, these I, corporate I, environments. Ugh. Oh, the corporate environments are awful. And I have I have no interest in the second set of developers, except to the extent that they might become members of the first set. Uh, I think one of the problems we have as an industry is that we've got way too many people slinging code, uh, and we should probably reduce the number of people slinging code to to the group that cares about it. Mm-hmm. Here, here. And then the, you brought up the other problem with the corporate environments is a lot of these products you're building internally. And I know Joel's talked about this many, many times, but it really is true. Having you know worked at large companies, and, and and even when you're working with teams that really want to do the right thing, you're building products that will never see the light of day in any meaningful way. Like they're only used by internal people for very narrow things. So these are products that would never survive in the outside world. I mean, they're just that bad. They're just they have bad features. They're not usable. <laughs> they don't meet a real need even internally to the business, not a real viable need. But somehow they sort of like, you know, amble along and sort of make their way through the pipeline. <laughs> you know, and so you end up working on these products. So that, <laughs> yeah, it's really sad. And this is a lot of times why Joel and I spend a lot of time urging people to get jobs like in the software industry. If you really love this stuff, if you're a super thoughtful developer, you're in the wrong place, right? If, if you're working at a company where a product's never going to see the light of day, it's like how good can you really make it? You know, WordPress has to be good. Because it's living in the real world. These other products that you're building internally don't have to be good. They don't even sometimes have to exist. So it, it's, it's tricky. I mean, it's like how deep do you want to go to examine the root cause of that problem? Because you may not like what you see there. <laughs> At least that was my reaction working in corporate America. I am, I am constantly amazed at the um, unfortunate level of expertise uh, of the people working in, in uh, large software groups. And, and there are exceptions to that. There are, there are some, some groups, some teams that are just terrific. But the, um, the vast majority of the code out there is really, really bad. And I think one thing that would help that, even internally... But wait, when but, I wait but wait, we have this whole... The, the, although it is true, it's also the case that you know, in the year 2009, we have this gigantic software infrastructure that makes our lives better. And 95% of that is running on, you know, quote-unquote, bad code. Uh, Yes. Um, But it's still, it's doing something. (laughs) It's certainly doing something. It's it's in some way making our lives better and allowing us to send tweets from the subway and and, uh, contact our loved ones more more reliably and track our customers and provide better customer service and count our money without hiring bookkeepers to sit and type things into um, those adding machines with the paper tape. Well, actually, let me tie this because, Bob, I saw you at – the first time I saw you was at SD West in 2006. That's when I met Steve McConnell, so that was an exciting oh. time for me. Uh, but I saw you talk, and one thing I remember you saying, and I remember this very clearly, was why is open source software so much better? <laughs> yes, I say that quite a bit. <laughs> yes, and, and yes. the reason it's better is kind of what I'm getting at. It's living in the real world where real people have is to it, work with it. Um, but Bob, it's not you- isolated in these islands. Would you so actually- it has to be good. Would you actually say that the code quality is better or just that the, the functionality of the products that you get is better? I, I've, I've seen both. I've seen open source projects where the code quality is, is not terrific, although most of the time the, the quality of the code in living open source projects is not bad mm-hmm. and compared to what you see uh, in other places. Uh, it, the reason I think 
open source software is better uh, is that the people who write it care about it. They're, they're not writing it for any kind of gain other than uh, the satisfaction of writing something good. Mm-hmm. So there, there are many, many products, for example, that do live in the real world, but are just bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people pay money for them, and they're still bad, and I won't name any names. Um, well, I, I don't think those will survive forever, though. Eventually, that'll get corrected. They'll survive a very, very long time, but I won't name any names. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to um, uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, test, test-driven development. I want to take a... Yes. Because that, 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 that was a long issue that we were talking about. And, and also, just to... Um, the, the, the one part of the record I do want to correct is what triggered me on that rant... I couldn't find this. I tried. I went back and I listened to the whole show and I couldn't find it. But when you, sure. when you were on Scott Hanselman's show, he just sort of had a, a, a half moment in which he mentioned that once some programmer that was working for him uh, tried to accomplish 100% t- test-driven development, used t- test-driven development and have tests for all new code, like literally 100%. And that's really yeah. actually what set me off because my experience everywhere, and I've done I've – done, loads and loads of test-driven development has, has been that there is a point at which uh, getting, getting from, from you know, 0% coverage to, to 50% coverage is pretty easy. Getting to 75%, I don't know what the real numbers are, is hard but worth it. But getting from like 80 to 90 to, to 95 to even 100% uh, is extremely hard, especially if you have... Uh, graphical user interfaces, if you have any kind of real-time uh, networking. or it's, 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 At some point, the, the costs go up dramatically to get those last few percents. Am, am I completely off the, off the wall there? Or? No, actually, I don't think you are. And I, I was reading through the transcript uh, today, and I was reading again how you were talking about 100% coverage. And that's something I agree with. I don't want people to have a hundred percent coverage. Although I think it's a good goal to shoot for, um, I don't want people. I don't think people will ever get to a hundred percent. The thing that wor- the worried the thing that worried me about that is the idea that if I had a programmer working for me who had ten things they could do, they, they let's say they had, and this is a real hypothetical, ninety nine percent code coverage, and there were yeah. ten things they could do, and one of them is to get from ninety nine to a hundred, and the second one is to deliver a whole nother feature to a customer, and the third one would be to improve the usability dramatically by doing a few usability tests and so forth. And they chose to go to 100 instead of considering the whole panoply of other things that they could be doing with that time. Um, that, that, that would sort of worry me as, as a kind of uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, basically. <laughs> I, I think I agree with you with that as well. Uh, there comes a, a break point where you think, well, all right, uh, there's just no point in trying to test uh, this one thing. And usually you're right. It happens around user interfaces or some other snaky part of the code. Uh, personally, I keep the, the number around 90-something, uh, 90-ish 90, percent. 90% of methods or 90% of lines of code? Or lines. lines. Uh, 90% of lines. Let me, um, um, let me play a question by Andrew Davis because that's going to lead into this. Uh, hi, guys. This is Andrew from Affinity Software in Western Australia. I have a, a rule of thumb with unit tests that you should only write them for uh, non-trivial pieces of software that have really well-defined inputs and outputs, basically numbers going in, numbers coming out. Uh, for Stack Overflow, that probably means um, the only area I can think of 
uh, where you should have unit tests is maybe the stuff that calculates reputa uh, reputation. Aside from that, no. Uh, Jeff, I hope that makes you feel a little bit better. Um, particularly, don't bother trying to write it for GUI code. Um, that is a black hole of time. Uh, hours will go in and nothing productive will ever come out. All right, see you guys. Okay, well, so well, I completely disagree with that. <laughs> okay. Well, let me let me let me take that in a slightly related direction real quickly because I was actually uh, had dinner last night with uh, John Galloway and Kevin Dente who have they have they're in the Hurting Code podcast and we talked about this briefly and one I like to look at coding as like reducing pain. Whenever I have pain coding, I try to fix it. Right. I figure what can I do to reduce the pain from this pain I'm experiencing. Because if I'm not experiencing pain, I feel like, okay, we're doing good. Uh, there's no pain points. But one of the pain points we have in the system on Stack Overflow now specifically is that our rule set is getting really complicated <laughs> in terms of the way we allocate repu reputation, the rules for how you know you can uh, turn a post into a community wiki post. There's a lot of rules in the system about the way things happen. Mm -hmm. And we've started to actually forget them ourselves which I view as like a pain point. Like we've started to actually forget the way the system is supposed to work because it's getting sure. complicated. Sure. So if one, one use for testing in this situation wouldn't necessarily be to validate the behaviors, although obviously hopefully it would, but as a form of documentation, we could go in and say, okay, here's the unit tests that define all the rules around how you get reputation, how you get badges, all that stuff. So if we forget, we could just, the code is the documentation, right? The tests okay. document the way the application is supposed to work. That's just one aside of one area I've thought about where it actually would help us to have unit tests. But anyway, go ahead, Bob, take it away. Well, yes, okay, and that's, and that's an extremely important point, that, that unit tests are usually very simple bits of code. Uh, they, they describe in excruciating detail and unerring accuracy how the code they are testing work. Uh, there is nothing ambiguous about them, uh, and they're written in a language that the programmer understands, so they're almost the perfect spec. Uh, if you want to know how a module works, you look at the unit tests that describe that module. Hopefully, those unit tests exist. If there are a set of unit tests that don't exist, uh, for example, the, uh, the uh, writer of the unit test followed the advice of the caller, uh, then you won't have that spec. What you'll have is a couple of statements of the spec, but you won't have the spec itself. So my guidelines for unit tests are very simple. Uh, if, it's, uh, if, you're, if you've got a, a function like a getter or a setter, you don't have to test it. It's just too stupid to test. I don't even. Anything else, you're going to test. Should you even have Anything getter, else? getters or setters? Can we, can we finally get rid of those? <laughs> Sorry. I thought getters and setters are just an artifact of C++, really. Or Java, Java or languages in which you know, people decided they wanted to make their variables private. Yeah. Uh, but okay, fine. Okay. Uh, so, any, so any little... Little function like that that has there's yeah. no possibility it can fail. Okay, don't write a test for that. But if you've got an if statement, you should write a test around that if statement. You should make sure that you've made the decision correctly. So this it doesn't is, um, take you much time to do that. Let's. I, I think we're all kind of agreed that there's there's a there's a there's a there's a trivial grounds. Let's call it the getters and the setters. That it's yep. just kind of not worth testing. There's a um, there, there's there's a there's a middle ground of uh, logic, business rules, um, functions that do functional things and can get a little bit complicated, uh, where it's enormously beneficial. Um, but then there's this there's this other world. So let's take GUIs for example. You know, my experience sure. with GUIs is that uh, the the first big problem is if you're a believer in test first development specifically, that 
um, it's often kind of unpredictable what, what the GUI is going to do in, in the small, I mean, in the large there is. So, so the, the, the classic example is I'm going to display the, the following sentence in the following dialog box. And I can write a test which goes to the dialog box, sends a message to the Windows control that has the label in it, and checks the text of that label. And that will pretty much always pass because this is essentially a getter at this point. Sorry, a setter, right? I'm, I set the label, and then I check that the label had that text. And what's really sure. interesting, what are the things that are going to fail? Well, the label wasn't big enough. It got chopped off on the screen. It, you know, maybe it wrapped around in, in, in some funny way, uh, or it just wound up being in an illogical place or it didn't line up with something. And so just now, as an aside, that's actually a really important case because people who have like high DPI settings, this is a really common failure mode for GUIs mm-hmm. where they didn't think about the fact that, oh, this is going to be used at different DPIs. Under, uh, under different DPIs and so forth. So that's a real problem. So, so my problem is that, okay, so how can I develop this test to test what's actually showing up on the screen as opposed to what's the underlying logic, uh, which I know is right? What's showing up on the screen, I could um, – try to create in a, in a bitmap editing program a bitmap of what I thought the dialog box should look like, but I'm going to be off by one. You know, I'm going to be off by a pixel because Windows is going to decide to word wrap on that word and not on the word that I thought they would. So I'm, I think I'm probably precluded. I think it's probably an impossibility to do test first, but maybe I can do test afterwards. So I run it once and I look at it and I say, okay, that's okay. And then I, I store that bitmap somewhere. Um, because it really is... And there are tools that do exactly this. I don't happen to like them, but they're there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of tools that do this. And this is, I think, yeah. is actually what I, what I was getting to when I said a, a large percentage of things will fail, because I have done this on large projects and then discovered that you take it to another machine with a different DPI setting, for example. Yeah, it's off. And it's off. all the tests, basically everything that has a bitmap in it, the bitmap has now changed. Or the point you raised in, uh, in uh, one of the other podcasts was that you move a menu. Right. And all the tests you've done broke. And, and I actually have clients who have thousands upon thousands of tests that run through the GUI. Uh, and um, every time anybody changes anything trivial on the, on the GUI, thousands of tests break. Right. And, and they have adopted the only approach they can at this point. That nobody changes the GUI. <laughs> the only way they can and that, and that, seems, that seems harmful to the consumer, ultimately, right? I mean, that's uh, yeah, the, yeah, the dark yeah. side. It, well, that company actually went out of business. So, uh, so what do I do? What do I do, Uncle Bob? Tell done. me what to do. <laughs> so obviously you can't, you can't do that. So the, the, the goal here is to test as much as you possibly can mm-hmm. um, without getting into the trap of testing everything through the GUI. The mistake that these people made was that they tested the whole system through the GUI. Well, what I, do you want to test through the GUI? You want to test the GUI through the GUI. Right. And, the, right? and that's it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind getting one of these tools that does automatic you know, bit mapping, checking, or whatever, as long as the only tests that went through it mm-hmm. were tests of the GUI, not a single business rule, no validation, nothing else, just is the wiring of the GUI correct. So they're the not actually, they're, I see, so you're saying that they're, all, they're not even testing that the app does what it's supposed to do, they're just testing that if the app changes a 24 to a 26, it shows up here. I don't even want the app connected, I want a dummy app connected. Okay. Right. Um, I want you to, you to write something stupid on the back end and hook it up to the same GUI. So, this, so that um, the, there's no temptation to test behind the GUI. This assumes like a really, really kind of large level of separation between the GUI and the quote-unquote, what you're calling the app, but I'm calling maybe the, yeah, the core. It assumes a good design. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. the, the, the apps, I've worked on so many apps where I wish, I just wish we could do that. But I think of um, 
you know, people don't understand fog bugs. It's a, it's a bug tracking system. It's feature tracking. It's got yeah. a lot of stuff there. And um, what they don't understand about it is how, how have we spent so much time on it when really internally it's a few tables. So there's a bug table and there's the, you know, there's the, there's the user table and there's the project table. It, to, to, uh, to, a, to a programmer, it looks like it, it must be really simple. And, and one of the reasons is that there are enormous amounts of code in, uh, in the GUI. In, in making you know certain things come out in the user interface, like like if if you actually said if you tried to cut fog bugs subcutaneously and kind of remove the face uh, of the GUI and separate it from the actual functionality, I think eighty percent of that code would be up up there in the UI. Well, that's an interesting supposition. Uh, and what makes you think that? Yeah, I, well. There must be windows that are communicating with each other. There must be cells that if you change a cell in one place, it changes in another. Uh, there must be a, a cross-coupling inside that GUI. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's, all a, it's all very complicated. <laughs> and is that where cross-coupling belonged? Or are those communication channels that are actually business rules that ought to be tested separately from the GUI? Uh, agreed. Uh, it, it, well, it, it's just a... Well, well, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe it is. If, if I well, had to think of, if I had to think of, and we, actually we did this actually because we just went through the exercise of creating an API uh, for people to use Fogbugs, which really is access to the underlying non-GUI stuff, and that API is very, very large, very complicated, has a very, very big surface area. Basically, um, I think it's 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 well designed. We know how to design these things from years of experience, but, uh, and it'll be very effective for our customers who want to do things not through the GUI, but through a programmatic interface to fog bugs. But that basically it's, it, it, the, the, um, the number of points, I mean, a GUI is really like a face, right? Like the number of connections between the face and the brain is huge. The number of sure. nerves that are there. And there's a lot of stuff that appears to be happening solely on a GUI level. So for example, a lot of user interface conveniences, which are happening, not, which, which don't really represent any kind of business rules. They're just sort of, um, and, you know, the classic so, example would be like a, a social security field that makes it easy to type a nine-digit number or, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. It's, sure. it's a gooey, gooey sugar, so to speak. Sure. And the, the, um, the social security field that makes it easy, it puts the dashes in, is something that doesn't have to live in the gooey and you could test. Right, right. Right. And anyway, those things are all oh. components that we just got from somewhere. <laughs> we, we uh, let me let's use an example. I think, Joel, you, a while ago you read the uh, – what's that classic book about sort of the Unix way of developing? Did Eric Raymond write yeah, it? Yeah, Eric Raymond, The Art of Unix Programming, I think. Or, right, right. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned was that the classic Unix way of developing a GUI was you start with a command line app, right, which has a defined set of inputs and outputs and, you know, pipes and, you know, basically text going in and out of a it. A lot of command line And then you put, a, you put a GUI on top of that. So then you have perfect separation – you don't necessarily have a great app, which is the deeper problem, right? But you have perfect separation because you're testing – you could test the command line independently and test the GUI independently, couldn't you, in that scenario? Yeah, certainly. Right. And by the way, that's the Git approach, which, which yeah. I, I'm deeply in love with Git. I think that um, I, I think that uh, you know Git is a is 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 awesome. That, that, that's a very Unixy approach to start with a yes, command line and worry about a GUI later. And I think that they've gotten. A, I think there's a lot of problems in the Unix world because of that, because they can never quite get the user interface good enough because it's depending on. The, yeah, the well, they're very yeah, they're very different things. I mean, this is like the problem, right? The command line world, opening a terminal. I was reading a blog entry where someone said, if you just disabled the terminal on every Unix programmer's 
desktop worldwide, you would immediately have massive increase in quality in the GUI. <laughs> because the immediate thing they do is they drop to the command line and, you know, oh, I can just do this through grab and stuff. They don't think about how would a person who doesn't want to go to the terminal do this? They don't think that way. So you end up with sort of crappy GUIs and great command line apps. Let me, let me take another question here. Let's, uh, let's move on. This is from Tim Kingdon. Hi, Joel and Jeff. My name is Tim Kington, and I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I really enjoy the podcast. Uh, I was listening to your discussion on testing a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to say that I think true test-driven development, and by this I mean writing your tests before you write the code, has a large benefit that you didn't talk about, and that's that it can significantly improve your design because you approach your APIs from the perspective of the client. Since you write the client code first, you wind up thinking about what would be easy to use and not so much what would be easy to implement. And I was interested in hearing what you uh, think about that. This is a really powerful point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. I mean, walking a mile in another developer's shoes is an incredibly, it, it's a really underrated benefit, I agree. So take it away, Bob. <laughs> oh, well, I, the fellow makes a, a very good point in that uh, if you are writing your tests first, it forces you into the, the mindset of the kind of separation that we were talking about. Uh, if you knew that you had to uh, put dashes in between the social security number fields, uh, you could write the test for that first. And then you would write the code for it. But the test would force you to create a module that did that separation. And then the GUI could call that module. Mm-hmm. So the mere act of writing tests first puts you in the mindset of separating things simply so they can be tested. But that separation well, pays off uh, many-fold. Wasn't well, it more just like eating your own dog food? Like at Fog Creek, do you guys use your own API? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're going to. I don't think we're going to. I think once it's done, we're not going to add another feature to the core app ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the, the reaction I got out of it, was it was just weird to be in the situation of consuming your own APIs. You really well, saw the problems. You, you are not consuming the API because you haven't written the API yet. You are well, writing the test to call that's right. an API that has not yet been... Well, in my case, I had already written it, so I was sort of backfilling oh, yes. the test. Not but in general, yeah, it, it's also design. But, it, but it's great. Anything you can do to eat your own dog food, whether it's, I mean, testing is, that's a great way to do that as well, unit testing. Like unit test for your API, Joel. Obviously, yeah. that's a place you would probably want unit tests. There's something here I have, um, you know, I think that good developers, um, there's sort of a range of developers. There's bad developers uh, who, no matter how much you teach them, are never going to get this stuff right. There's really good developers who, even if they don't uh, use test-driven development or call it, uh, what was it, behavior-driven development, basically, where mm-hmm. almost like des- des- design, you know, that form of design, there are really, really good developers who will actually probably design things right just through their intuition or through their experience. And then there's some middle world of people who will be helped uh, substantially by uh, think, thinking about how am I going to unit test this and how can I create a test for this thing? I better break it up into these particular ways. Uh, I, I think that's true, right? So you're going to have developers that are good designers and developers that aren't. Test-driven development, the act of writing a test first, forces you into a mindset where the rules of good design uh, get applied much more frequently at an, and at a much finer granule of detail. Um, so even if you are a great designer, thinking about your code in terms of tests first will help you design it better. Uh, at least that's my experience. Uh, it, it has made a profound difference in the way I approach the writing of, of software and, and the design of software. 
All right, let's do it. Let's do some questions from Stack Overflow, as is our tradition. Um, Bob, you got one? Oh, uh, yeah, I do. Uh, let's see. There is this one here, which is a large switch date. Ah, yes, my favorite. This, I always like the questions like this. Yeah, let's I can do that answer. one. Uh, and let's see, how's it go? It goes, uh, I've always been of the opinion that large switch statements are a symptom of bad OO design. Uh, in the past, I've read articles that discuss this topic, and they have provided alternative OO-based approaches, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, now I'm in a situation that has a monstrous switch statement based on a stream of data uh, from a TCP socket in which the protocol consists of basically new line terminated command followed by lines of data, blah, blah, blah. And essentially what he's got to do is is switch on this stuff coming in from the socket and do a bunch of work. So effectively, he's got a command line interpreter of some sort, and he's looking at the first thing in the command line and deciding what to do. And the yes. natural way people write that is with a big, gigantic switch statement. Yeah. And that's probably the way I'd write it, too. All right, good. That's what I would do, too, so we're all <laughs> agreed. <laughs> so uh, there are problems with switch statements, and the, the two big problems with switch statements are... Uh, when they have a whole bunch of outgoing dependencies. So if you've got a switch statement that has 20 cases, and each one of those cases hangs a dependency on another module, then that switch statement is going to be an attractor for change. Any of those modules change, the switch statement has to change mm -hmm. or, or be affected by the change. Uh, it'll have to get recompiled or redeployed. And any module that depends on the module that contains the switch statement will therefore have a transitive dependency. Uh, when you've got that kind of outgoing spiderweb of dependencies, well, then you'd probably want to create a hash map of some kind and use uh, command objects instead of doing a switch statement just to break those dependencies so that you can still have independent deployability. Mm. And the other problem with switch statements uh, is when the same switch statement gets replicated over and over again. Uh, and that's just duplicate code. You've got... Uh, uh, a uh, transaction type, uh, read, write, update, and it's scattered throughout the code. You switch on these three cases over and over and over again. Probably what you ought to have is some kind of base class that has three functions and then do polymorphic deployment instead of a, a replicated switch statement. We actually, I think that's something we did in, uh, in Fogbugs. There's the, the, it's, it's basically got this dispatch architecture um, where every URL that comes in um, in includes two pieces of information, which we basically have to decode. One is, what did the user just do that changes the, the, the data model? And we do that first. And the second is, what page of the user interface do they want to see now? And then we create that one. And those are called the pre and the page, and that's our architecture. Every page has a pre and a page. And um, uh, the, 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 it used to be a big, gigantic uh, um, switch. And we tried very, very hard to make sure that the case of every Every, every case in the switch um, was just one line. And, in fact, we tried to make it relatively consistent the way that that worked so that at least it was nothing more than a big old dispatch table. And there's lots of other ways you could do it. You could do it with an array of function pointers or a table of, of a dictionary of, of command and the function pointer. And uh, we actually luckily control our own compiler, so we just modified the language. <laughs> we, <laughs> what we did is we added a capability to decorate uh, any function anywhere with... Um, a, a little decorator that goes right before the function that says, by the way, if you ever get that thing, this is the code that you run in that case. And so we wound up just basically eliminating the gigantic switch statement and uh, more or less generating it automatically at compile time. 
for, for all intents and purposes. So we wound up with kind of a if somebody wants to write new functionality, it's all in one place. It's all in one file, including sure. its entry in that map in that command map. And uh, I, there's there's often ways. Actually, I mean, in, in you could do this in C sharp, right? Because you can add your own, and, and in Ruby you can do this, and Python you can add your own decorators. Sure. So uh, modern languages are actually catching up with with this idea of um, you know the general principle of having a single um, single focus. You know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Bob? That, that, that all the stuff is in one place for one piece of functionality instead of having to have its little ambassador representative in the switch statement and a little representative in the UI and a little representative in the... Yeah. You can kind of get want, that all in one place. All the code in one place instead of scattered all over the place. Right. So we're yeah. not going to talk about the, the, the accepted answer here is to try the command pattern, but... The guy, uh, Nezroy, also mentions that a switch statement may work, depending on what you're doing. I mean, depending well, yeah, on how I many there are. I don't know why he wouldn't do a switch statement, in, in his case, unless he's got this sprawling spider web of dependencies. People, I mean, people get worried about this because they see a 100-line function. But the truth yeah. is, these switch statements just wind up being, you know, you alphabetize it, <laughs> and you make uh, yeah. it nice and tight, and every case is one line. And it's just a big old table that drives your... your uh, that drives it's, your, it's a data. Yeah, it really yeah. is a piece of data at that point. It's it's not the fact that you execute it is irrelevant. Well, you mentioned uh, data. The, could could you actually store it as like like a hash table or something yeah, with the sure. commands? Sure. But then yeah, what are you doing? Then you're trying to implement the switch statement yourself. So now you're writing code to implement the switch statement, which is already built into your compiler. Yeah, but I was just thinking that a hash table or something like that might be slightly easier to maintain than a giant switch statement. I, I think it depends. I mean, that's basically what we're saying is it depends. But uh, there's nothing really evil about the switch statement. That's what I'm hearing. Is that true? So my, my rule for switch statements is that they must appear, if they appear, they appear once, mm -hmm. uh, not many times. And usually the cases will be creating some object as opposed to doing something. Uh, and I'm soft on that last bit as long as it's, so it's very like a, obvious. So it's like a factory, actually. It's going to make a command object to execute. Usually that's the way I would want it to be. It would, it would have to be creating an object that would then be polymorphic thereafter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of this command line thing, well, it's probably just one dumb switch statement that calls a bunch of functions that are very simple. So yeah, that doesn't bother and, me. So. And taking this back to our previous point, this is the kind of developer who's actually thinking about what he's doing. He actually had yeah. enough forethought to come and say, wow, I wrote a really long switch statement. Is this good, bad? How should I? You've already won, right? You're already winning at that point in my experience. It's the developers who write the 100-line switch statements and then like never give it a second thought. They're on to the next thing. It kind of works. They can build. You know, those are the really the problem developers. So I, I think we agonize over this stuff a little too much sometimes. And the fact that you're agoni agonizing over it is in, in itself a good thing. So don't get me wrong. But you don't need to agonize over it that much either. Cool. We are, we're, we're going kind of long. I'm going to have to uh, trim this down a little bit. So I think I'll... Uh, I'll call to an end. Uh, Bob, thank you very much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Um, thank you, guys. There's a lot. Thanks. And uh, let's see. What else do we want to say? Um, uh, the show notes uh, will be up on the uh, blog.stackoverflow.com uh, as usual. Um, there's a hotline to our listeners. There's a hotline you can call if you have any questions uh, or want to leave a comment or something you want us to talk about on a future show. And uh, you can either call uh, the number, which is 646-826-3879, or you can re record an MP3 or Ogvorbis file and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. You can also just email podcast at stackoverflow.com, but 
but we don't have um, uh, have a lot of time to to read that. So it's it's probably better if you record it. When you record it, try to keep it under ninety seconds. Um, there's a um, transcript pay- wiki which we use. Um, for uh, listeners, if there's anything that you heard here that you want uh, to share, um, and also for the benefit of the hearing impaired, um, you can go to blog.stackoverflow.com, and, and uh, at the bottom uh, of the show notes, there'll be a link to the wiki page um, where listeners around the world like you each contribute by uh, transcribing a you know, half a minute or a minute of this show um, to make it uh, available to other listeners. Other than that, uh, see you next week. Jeff, you're supposed to say, see you next week. Oh, sorry. See you next week. <laughs> you're reading all And you'll somewhere. leave that in, too. That's he's, great. He's deleting all, this, all the switches from his code. Uh. <laughs> You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.